Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The quotation from the first part of my talk title is a translation taken from one of the Latin plays that Campion wrote while he was professor of rhetoric at the Jesuit College in Prague. The play is called Ambrosia. Based on the life of St. Ambrose, it was written for performance by the students at the college. This is Campion's only play that survives in full, though we do know that he wrote at least two more full-length plays and we possess bits and pieces of his other dramatic writing. Playwriting may not be the first thing you associate with the name of Edmund Campion, probably one of the most famous of the Elizabethan Catholic martyrs. But tonight I want to discuss some of his writings, including some which to date haven't received very much popular or scholarly attention. I'm going to explore how Campion's background as a literary scholar and Jesuit playwright influenced the way in which he conducted himself on the heroic English mission and his path to martyrdom. Um, I'm going to speak for about 40 minutes and my talk is made up of three parts. In the first part, I want to explore aspects of the Jesuit and Counter-Reformation context by which Campion was influenced during his time on the continent. And here I'm going to focus on the role of Jesuit drama and the visual arts. In the second part, I'll go on to discuss some of Campion's own writings. And finally, in the third part, I'll explore the role that literature, art and music played in immemorializing Campion after his death, making him a tremendously influential figure hundreds of years before he was finally beatified in 1886. So this is part one, the Society of Jesus, the Counter-Reformation and the Arts. The Society of Jesus was founded in 1540 by Ignatius Loyola. They were one of the most radical and influential religious foundations of the early modern period and the Counter-Reformation. They weren't founded to counter-reformed ideas as such, but they became highly influential at the 16th century Council of Trent and became very much associated with the Counter-Reformation movement. The Jesuits founded a European and global network of schools and seminaries, as well as administering many other technically non-Jesuit organizations. By the time the Society of Jesus was founded, the use of sacred images for liturgical and devotional purposes was already under sustained attack from the Protestant Reformation. It's almost difficult to overstate just how central the image question became to reformers. Leading European reformers cast their religious struggle as a war against papal idolatry and superstition. Fears of idolatry brought about waves of religious iconoclasm which swept Europe during the 16th century. And Scotland, where we're standing now, was actually the iconoclastic capital of early modern Europe. Within the context of the European image debates, England represented one of the most radically iconoclastic outposts of the Reformation, and the only country with a more extreme track record of iconoclastic fundamentalism was its neighbour Scotland. 
This iconoclasm expressed something so fundamental about the theological project of the reformers that it's been ironically described by the Catholic historian Eamon Duffy as a sacrament of the Reformation. A fundamental theological sea change was being ritually enacted in terms of theological understandings of the role of sacred images and of the arts more broadly within the spiritual life. The Reformation cast into question centuries of evolving tradition, which had placed art, architecture, music, ritual, and theatrical performance at the heart of the liturgical and devotional life of the church. By contrast, from very early on after its foundation, the Society of Jesus affirmed the fundamental spiritual importance of the arts. In fact, this eventually emerged as a crucial part of a Jesuit charism and a key influence within counter-reformation culture. Despite the vast scale of these contemporary theological controversies surrounding images though, the Council of Trent's formal decrees make surprisingly little reference to sacred images or to the arts more generally. Official attempts to address these questions appeared only in a short and rather hastily produced decree from the last days of the Council uh, called on invocation, veneration and relics of saints and on sacred images. And this decree largely repeated the teachings of the Council of Nicaea it reiterated the lawfulness of venerating relics and sacred images, and it approved of their use as tools for the instruction of the laity. There were some associated calls for reform of the arts, spearheaded by influential churchmen like Carlo Borromeo. Uh, but in practice, these reforms focused mainly on cleaning up abuses, like, for example, inappropriately superstitious or lascivious behavior in front of religious images, or by addressing concerns about various creeping secular influences on sacred art. And an example there would be um, the use of um, uh, the, the creation of mass settings based on secular songs. Crucially, however, these post-Tridentine attempts to clean up the sacred arts were accompanied by a renewed focus on the ways in which the senses and the imagination could be employed for pious and devotional ends. The influence of the rapidly growing Society of Jesus was key here. The Jesuits had an ambitious vision of the uses to which art could be put when suitably censored and reformed. And this became a driving force behind their tremendous contribution to the sacred arts in the 16th and 17th centuries, both as artists and as patrons. From architecture to painting, from music to drama, there was no major sphere of artistic development within the life of the church that didn't feel Jesuit influence. And this was probably especially true of visual culture in its various forms. In the aftermath of Trent, the Jesuits sought to discipline and reform erroneous responses to sacred images, but they also steadfastly defended their value as devotional and instructional tools. And while Jesuit and counter-Reformation attitudes to images were clearly shaped to some degree by the Reformation image wars, this only gave sharper focus to the bold and often original claims they mounted for the spiritual power of sacred images and the sacred arts. And the society's uses of such images were innovative and widespread. The earliest Jesuit illustrated books were only produced in Antwerp in 1566, but in the 17th century, they went on to become the most prolific producers of emblem books. The society also produced pictorial passion sequences, which were printed alongside devotional texts as meditational aids for readers. Other Jesuit image sequences show the pious Christian interacting with images of Christ in a spiritually fruitful way. 
So images thus increasingly came to form a fundamental and distinctive part of Ignatian meditations and spiritual activities. St. Ignatius Loyola's spiritual exercises weren't printed with illustrations until the 17th century, but right from their earliest days of circulation, the exercises sought to harness the visual imagination for devotional ends. Later Jesuit formulations of image theory build upon this, and they suggest that during meditation, the pious Christian should imprint images within his or her heart uh, until he becomes like a living image of Christ, embodying and performing what is now in a way printed upon his very soul. The society also commissioned many paintings and frescoes for its churches and made widespread use of images as tools in Jesuit missions to the New World, where they, uh, they often helped to overcome linguistic barriers and communication. Drama was another major sphere of operation. In fact, the Jesuits went on to become the producers of the largest body of dramatic literature in Europe throughout the 17th century. Jesuit drama was framed by counter-reformation objectives from the start, and it rapidly developed into a fundamental part of the society's educational identity. Drama was written into the Jesuit constitution, as well as the later Ratio Studiorum, the formal rule of studies. It began as part of the Jesuit way of teaching oratory and rhetoric in their schools and colleges. But as drama started to form an increasingly central part of the curriculum, Jesuit dramatists were soon designing their plays to help as much with spiritual as with rhetorical formation. Drama quickly took on a more ambitious position at the interface between institution and outer world, as theatrical production started to expand beyond the school and college walls to be performed in front of what could sometimes be really huge audiences. These civic productions were often politically advantageous as they helped to integrate Jesuit institutions within communities where it weren't always friendly to the society. So as well as focusing on the spiritual nurture of the individual Christian who might be writing, performing or watching the play, Jesuit drama was often very alert to the broader political context of its performance. So I want now to turn to examine Campion's one surviving dramatic work, which is one of the earliest extant examples of Jesuit drama written by an Englishman. This is part two, St. Edmund Campion's Ambrosia and the Jesuit English Mission of 1580. Martyr drama as a genre rapidly became something like a hallmark of Jesuit theatre. And today, as I said, I'll be focusing on just one example, Campion's Ambrosia. When Campion was a young man, religious scruples led him to leave a promising career in Oxford to join the recusant community of English Catholics in Douai in France. There he was received into the Catholic Church. Later on, he joined the Society of Jesus and taught for them for some years in Prague, and this is the period during which his playwriting activities occurred. He was finally summoned to Rome and sent on the dangerous English mission to minister to the recusant Catholic community in Elizabethan England. In England, he spent 18 months on the run, preaching, writing, publishing from a secret printing press, and administering the sacraments to the Catholic community in Elizabethan England sorry, uh, before being arrested in 1581. He was repeatedly interrogated and tortured uh, before being condemned to death and executed at Tyburn. And this is obviously just the barest outline sketch of Campion's life. So if you're interested in discovering more, uh, then I'd recommend you to one of the several biographies which have been written. Um, and so, oh, sorry, that was a picture of Campion I meant to show you before. Um, and some of my own personal favorites are these two. Um, 
Evelyn Waugh's classic Edmund Campion, Jesuit and Martyr, um, and a more recent one, Jared Kilroy's Edmund Campion, A Scholarly Life, which contains a lot of fascinating new research into Campion's intellectual life and writings. As I mentioned earlier, one piece of Campion's literary and intellectual life which hasn't received much attention to date is his dramatic writing. His martyr play Ambrosia is the only one to survive, but we know that Campion did write other plays and we do possess some other fragments of dramatic writings as well as some records about two plays he wrote that haven't survived. But these can give us clues about the kind of subject matter which interested Campion and very happy to discuss this further you know, after the talk or of wine if anyone's interested in knowing more about the content of Campion's other writings. Ambrosia is one of the earliest extant examples, as I said, of English Jesuit theatre. It dramatises episodes from the life of St Ambrose. The main episodes show the relics of the early Christian martyrs, St Gervasius and St Protasius, being rediscovered and celebrated. And this happens against the backdrop of Ambrose's conflict with Empress Justina, who is a supporter of the Arian heresy. The play later turns to Ambrose's stormy relationship with the Emperor Theodosius. So there are obvious contemporary parallels there in terms of dramatising conflicts between Catholic clergy and the state. The play was first performed twice in 1578, some months before Campion himself was summoned to Rome to be dispatched to England. It was performed once in the college and then again in the castle, where audience members included the Empress, the Queen of France and the Archbishop of Prague. The first part of the play is dominated by events surrounding the exhumation of the relics of Gervasius and Protasius, who were early Christians martyred under Nero's persecution. And these two particular martyrs had featured in John Calvin's scathing treatise on relics, uh, published in 1543. And Calvin in it had suggested contemptuously that if all the extant relics claimed to belong to the two saints were gathered together, they would prove that each man must have had at least four bodies. Uh, so countering this, Campion's play stages an unapologetically triumphal celebration of the relics. The scene in which the relics are celebrated opens with a split choir singing of the Eterna Christi Munera, a hymn to the martyrs, which was believed at the time to have been written by St Ambrose. The audience never actually sees the relics themselves. They're presented on stage in two biers, which form the centre point for the two choirs of clerics on either side. After the Eterna Christi Munera has been sung, two boy actors stand by the beers, holding up for display the instruments of torture and execution, a scourge, a club and a sword, while the events of the saint's sufferings are recited. And here are the lines in English translation. Um, I couldn't fit the Latin on the slide as well. The crowd runs to the place of execution. The hangman seizes both of them and he thrashes Gervasius hung on a high doorpost with a whip with leaden balls, his back breaking under the frightful scourge. As a rock which the waves and the sea cannot possibly set in motion, he continuously invokes Christ, marked by lashes and broken by his wounds. And then he departs, having conquered the tyranny, departs for the hosts of angels for the safe place. Filled with envy, Protasius watches the struggle of his brother. His heart is full of courage and is not shaken by threats or enticements. With the same firm step, he hastily goes to the stars, mangled by the rough bark of hard cudgels. He invokes Christ and bears testimony to him to the last gasp. Eventually, his martyrdom is finished and he dies by the sword. So this 
scene provides a powerful visual image for the audience to meditate upon with the beers and especially with the instruments of their torture. And by holding them up like this while their sufferings are recited, the scene works to present the martyrs' broken bodies and the instruments of their torture like images for intense imaginative meditation. They're staged here very much like the attributes of martyrdom, which martyr subjects are often shown surrounded by or holding in fine art. And um, you know, here's an example of St. Catherine holding her book and martyr's palm with the wheel she was tortured on showing in the background. And beside it, you can see another image in stained glass showing Catherine with the wheel and the sword by which she died. And of course, Campion's play combines this emblematic image with a surrounding narrative text uh, via the lines spoken by the actors. So the scene also functions like one of those later Jesuit emblem books I mentioned earlier, which became tremendously popular throughout the late 16th and 17th centuries. And you know, digressing for a moment, I'd just like to observe this again, this kind of harnessing of all the powers of the sensory imagination is absolutely fundamental uh, to the spiritual exercises, the cornerstone of Jesuit spirituality, since the exercises encourage the reader to participate imaginatively uh, in scenes from the life of Christ. Returning to Ambrosia, the viewer is encouraged through this intense meditation to start to participate, to inscribe themselves into the narrative. <clears throat> Protasius himself is presented in these lines that we've just heard as the ideal spectator of martyrdom, spurred on to emulate his brother's efforts. Looking on as Gervasius suffers his martyrdom, Protasius is depicted as seized by envy, the Latin word there is emulus, driven to it by a fervent, passionate desire for martyrdom, going to meet it with rapid step. The kind of image of martyrdom that Gervasius provides in his final agonies is intoxicating. It's something that seizes the onlooker with a loss to emulate and perform it himself. And in the play, it's not just Protasius that this applies to. The scene is also witnessed on stage by a group of armed soldiers who've been sent by the enraged empress to murder Ambrose. So as Ambrose himself celebrates these holy relics on stage, he's fully aware of his own danger and he's fully prepared to follow their example. And in fact, as events unfold, the soldiers themselves will be miraculously converted by the holy miracles they witness and Ambrose's own martyrdom is ultimately averted. So the play affirms the power of the martyr's witness to convert onlookers, even those who can only gaze upon their relics. Here, witnessing or meditating upon the image of martyrdom can bring out in the viewer a powerful desire to participate actively in what he or she sees. So it's the power of the martyrs, as invested in their relics, to convert that the play is preoccupied with. The conversion of individuals, yes, but also the conversion of the state itself. There are obvious parallels between the conflicts we see in the play between Bishop Ambrose and the state and more contemporary Reformation conflicts. In the play, the Empress, who is a mortal enemy of St. Ambrose, rejects his teaching on the Trinity on the grounds that it's nowhere found in the Holy Bible, in an obvious parallel with the reformers' emphasis on sola scriptura. And contemporary parallels for these conflicts in the world of the play obviously included Campion's own native England, where Catholics found themselves oppressed by an increasingly hostile Protestant state. Campion's play was performed just months after the Roman catacombs were accidentally rediscovered to tremendous international attention and excitement. 
And here you can see an image of one of the early frescoes depicting Christ and his apostles. This one is from the um, anonymous catacomb of Via Anapo, which was the earliest to be reopened. And these events contributed greatly to the cult of the martyrs. St. Philip Neri, counter-reformation saint and the founder of the Brothers of the Secular Oratory, promoted these early Christian martyrs with particular vigor. He spent all night vigils underground and he organized ceremonial processions of the relics around the streets of Rome. There was an atmosphere of fervent piety and spiritual excitement. We know about this because it was documented by various eyewitnesses, not all of them friendly. It included, for example, uh, the English government agent and later playwright, Anthony Munday, uh, who'd been staying with the Jesuits as a spy. Ambrosia was thus written on the cusp of an explosion of pious devotion to the early martyrs, which also coincided with more contemporary events in England and Europe. Just months after his play was first performed in Prague, Campion would be summoned to Rome, there to be appointed to lead the first Jesuit English mission with his friend Robert Persons. It's unlikely that Campion could have known when he wrote his play that he would so soon be sent back to England. But if we read it in the context of Campion's impending journey, Ambrosia provides significant insights into Campion's developing exploration of the significance of martyrdom and public witness especially in relation to a hostile state. It speaks to his awareness of the potentially extraordinary effects of such a public witness at enormous personal cost in the face of state power, and it can shed fresh light for us on his actions during the 18 months of the English mission, as well as on his posthumous influence. Recent research by historians of the English mission has made clear the extent to which Campion and his fellow Jesuits very deliberately set out to construct their own narrative legend. It's something of a critical commonplace amongst historians of martyrdom to talk about the scaffold as a theatre of death. But the career of Campion and Persons shows them crafting and fashioning their own literary legend right from the very start, and that they were doing this well before they first landed on English soil. The English government's extensive spy network meant that the government knew all about the mission from the start and all about the father's progress towards England. There was considerable state anxiety surrounding their approach, although they successfully escaped capture when they landed at Dover. And so some of this recent historical research has shown how the Jesuit fathers deliberately colluded in working up a narrative of state paranoia surrounding their arrival, in which they became the objects of almost legendary fear. They also adopted, and it seems possibly even relished, a number of elaborate disguises on the dangerous crossing from Rome via Ireland. The play acting of a kind again. On arrival, Campion's brief career as a missionary preacher before his eventual capture and execution was accompanied by a very flamboyant literary trail. First, there was the leak of his famous challenge or brag, a written challenge to the secular authorities and a defense of his motives in entering England as an emissary of the Society of Jesus. Later, there was the equally incendiary release of Campion's Rationis Decem, uh, or his theological defense of Catholic orthodoxy, and 400 copies of this were daringly laid in the, in the Oxford University Church of St. Mary on the morning of commencement day. Campion's final words from the scaffold are quoted in an eyewitness account by Father Thomas Oldfield, who was himself a future martyr. Campion quotes from the words of St. Paul, describing the public witness of the martyr 
as a kind of theatrical performance before men and angels, at which the ultimate audience and judge is Almighty God. After some small pause in the cart, with grave countenance and sweet voice, stoutly spake as followeth, Spectaculum facti sumus Deo, Angeli et hominibus, saying, these are the words of St. Paul, English thus. We are made a spectacle or a sight unto God, unto his angels, and unto men. Verified this day in me, who am here a spectacle unto my Lord God, a spectacle unto his angels, and unto you men. Within the tradition of martyrology, the blood of the martyrs can be understood as a kind of trope, a fertile substance which both unites their sacrifice to Christ's and helps to fertilise the growth of new converts. Campion's last words from the scaffold demonstrate that he was highly self-conscious about the way that his death was already beginning to be translated into an image, a pictorial and dramatic spectacle, even before it had actually occurred. And after the event, he was almost immediately immemorialized in print and image, and he entered the roster of martyrs as one of the cornerstone figures of the Counter-Reformation martyrology. Part three, Campion's posthumous influence. So in the last part of my talk today, I want to go on to briefly explore Campion's posthumous impact after his death, Campion was rapidly constructed into an icon of Catholic and Jesuit martyrdom. Literary texts and images played a vital role in this construction. Historians of early modern martyrdom increasingly acknowledge the powerful role of literature and literary genre in shaping the ways in which stories about martyrdom were created and disseminated. And this occurred, of course, across the confessional spectrum. Judging by Campion's literary activities, which I described briefly earlier, the publicity campaign attached to the dangerous English mission, and his performance during his trial and execution, this was something of which Campion and his fellow Jesuits were very well aware. It was also an issue which became of increasingly and sometimes literally pressing importance during the final decades of Elizabeth's reign. And this was because of political changes to the way in which religious dissenters were tried under Elizabeth. Uh, because under Queen Mary, Protestants had been tried and executed for heresy. And this meant that they could be relatively straightforwardly immemorialized as victims of religious persecution um, principally by John Fox's hugely influential book, His Acts and Monuments of the Martyrs. But the Elizabethan administration showed considerable political acumen by trying Catholic priests and recusants, not for heresy, but for treason. Uh, and Campion's own high-profile trial was the first of these anti-Jesuit treason trials. So Catholic apologists were thus presented with a formidable representational challenge how to depict their subjects convincingly as martyrs of religious persecution rather than as traitors and secular criminals. And this was a challenge taken up with considerable enthusiasm in both text and image. One of those who did take up this challenge was the influential English Catholic martyrologist Richard Verstegen. Verstegen printed an eyewitness account of Campion's death, 
And this caused such a furore that he was forced to flee England to escape arrest, whereupon he began upon an influential career as a martyrologist, becoming something like the Counter-Reformation answer to John Fox, or perhaps something of an own goal by the Elizabethan administration there. Uh, this was one of the earliest printed accounts. The other occurred in a text by Robert Persons called De Persecutione. Mm. And a woodcut of Campion's torture on the rack, along with other scenes of persecution of English Catholics, including him, featured in Verstegen's first broadsheet, which is called The Presentis Ecclesiae Persecutione Anglicane Typus, published in the early summer of 1582 at Reims. Persons' story of the English mission and Verstegen's images began to reach a wide European audience, especially in France and Italy, where they were originally published. And these were critical texts in the emergence of a counter-reformation, pan-European, burgeoning cult of martyrdom, which embraced contemporary martyrs as the heirs of the early Christians, whose relics were then being celebrated in the recently opened catacombs. We can read the trope that I mentioned before of the blood of the martyrs in the account written by the Jesuit missionary and future martyr Henry Walpole of his own conversion. Walpole wrote that his conversion occurred at the time of his witnessing Campion's death, when he was standing so close to the scaffold that he was splashed by the martyr's blood. There are other fascinating examples of Elizabethan recusant Catholics undertaking, undertaking very elaborate public performances of recusancy. And a good example here would be the York martyr, St. Margaret Clitheroe. Uh, Margaret Clitheroe used to undertake nightly pilgrimages to the site where previous Catholics had been executed. And she later staged, as it were, her own very ritualized and elaborate walk to execution. After her death, she was promptly written into Verstegen's martyrology. And the image you can see on screen here is the woodcut of her execution by pressing, which Verstegen published. And text and image weren't the only ways in which Campion and the other martyrs were immortalized in sacred art. The Catholic musician and composer to the Chapel Royal, William Byrd, wrote a musical lament for the death of Campion using the words of Psalm 78, Deus venerant gentes. Byrd also set to music some of the last words of the other Catholic victims of the state. And together with other musical laments for the plight of English Catholicism, these collectively became something like the musical soundtrack of the English recusant community. And these musical laments were not confined solely to English audiences either. So in theater, in music, literature, and image, the plight of English Catholicism was rapidly gaining a pan-European audience. Alongside this musical immorialization, Verstegen's woodcuts of Campion and the other emerging figures of the English martyrs contributed to the emergence of a burgeoning and remarkably fertile martyrology. These images collectively helped to produce a fertile response from some of their viewers, just as Campion's blood had helped to generate Henry Walpole's personal conversion and path to mission and martyrdom. The cult of the early Christian martyrs led to a trend for church frescoes depicting their sufferings, but this was most notably true in some of the Jesuit centers where current missionaries were being trained. So in the Roman church of San Stefano Rotondo, for example, which was then under the charge of the Society of Jesus's German and Hungarian college, an artist called Niccolo Sercagnani was commissioned for a series of 34 graphic scenes of the deaths of the early martyrs. And Charles Dickens uh, viewed these images during his tour of Italy in 1844, and he described these, quote, hideous paintings with a sort of 
shudderingly anglicised post-enlightenment disgust. Dickens said, these represent the martyrdoms of saints and early Christians, such a panorama of horror and butchery no man could imagine in his sleep, though he were to eat a whole pig raw for supper. And here in this next image, uh, you can see closer up a couple of examples of the frescoes that so offended Dickens, with uh, perhaps a strikingly graphic depiction of St Agatha suffering her breasts being cut off on the left and the crucifixion of St Peter on the right. So this, this German college had been founded in 1552 with the aim of countering Protestantism. And from 1573, it had an explicitly missionary focus. So all its students were required to take an oath on entering the college that they would return to Germany to combat Protestant heresy. So these frescoes were therefore designed to be viewed by German seminarians about to be sent back as missionaries to German Protestant states. And the same artist, Sir Cagnani, was also further commissioned by the Jesuits to produce a series of frescoes for the Venerable English College in Rome, depicting this time much more recent events. In the English College, a second group of murals depicted the martyrdoms of the English Catholics in the 16th century, including Campion. These depicted martyrdoms right up until 1583, which was probably the year in which the frescoes were completed, so in this sense, it was almost like a piece of journalism documenting recent events. Unfortunately, these frescoes are no longer extant. Um, everything we know about them comes from a series of detailed engravings of the frescoes, which was published by a man called Giovanni Cavalieri shortly after they were completed. And the artist has clearly drawn on some of Verstegen's early printed images of 16th century executions for direct inspiration. We can see this if we look at this image of the racking of Campion, which was published in Cavalieri. Um, and so this is an engraving of the fresco that would then have been on the walls of the English College in Rome. And here it is side by side with the original woodcut image from Verstegen. So you can see how similar they are and how Verstegen's woodcut has inspired Cercognani's fresco. So these frescoes told a visual history of continuity from the early English church, right up until Campion and his fellow Elizabethan martyrs. They were designed to foster a culture amongst the students in which these young men were encouraged to venerate the English martyrs and to see England's Catholic history as part of a much larger unbroken narrative, which stretched right back to the Roman catacombs and the days of the early church. Here beneath the frescoes, the priests of the venerable English college took their vows before leaving for England and here the members of the college gathered to celebrate by singing the Te Deum whenever they heard the news that yet another former member had suffered martyrdom on English soil. And I understand that this is actually a tradition which continues to the present day, um, that every year on 1st of December, the anniversary of Rafe Sherwin's execution, the members of the Venerable English College gather around the altar under the martyr's picture, which is painted in 1583, by Durante Alberti to celebrate Martyrs Day by singing the Te Deum. I'm getting some, some nods from the audience here in confirmation. <clears throat> so in conclusion, what can we gain then by reading Campion's Ambrosia in the context of a Jesuit English mission and his own posthumous legacy, as well as the emerging cult of the early martyrs? Although Campion's play was in all probability written before he himself could have known about his impending journey on the English mission, it shows him already imaginatively exploring the significance of martyrdom 
and the powerful witness of the Christian in the face of a punitively hostile and heretical state. We don't need to assume any kind of straightforward identification between Campion and his protagonist Ambrose to read in his play a fascinating illustration of the complex ways in which literature and life came to produce one another. The final two years of Campion's brief but spectacular career show him actively participating in the literary creation of his own and the society's enduring legend in England. Meanwhile, his last self-conscious performance on the scaffold shows him preparing to be incorporated as text and image into the martyrology that would generate another next wave of converts. Here on screen, you can see a final example of such an image which shows the execution of Campion together with two of his fellow Jesuits. And this one is taken from an engraving published in Cavalieri. So it gives us a glimpse of the original fresco of Campion's execution, which would have been uh, viewed by future missionaries on the walls of the Venerable English College Chapel. Campion's Ambrosia thus forms part of an emerging Jesuit, post-Tridentine and counter-Reformation affirmation of the legitimate power of sacred images. These images are shown bringing some of their audience to the point of a real life spiritual conversion as they internalize and perform in their own lives what they have seen. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.